0: This morning we'll be continuing with our study of 1 Peter, and we're in chapter 3. We'll
1: start reading verse 1, 1 Peter, chapter 3. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words. Behavior of their lives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. This is uh, another admonition to submit. He started in chapter 2 at verse 13, where Peter says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake, every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority and governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right and then down in uh, verse 18 it says slaves submit yourselves to your masters with all respect not only to those who are good and considerate but also to those who are harmful so just continuing with these uh, passages instructing us to submit Uh, submit to the government Uh, If you're a slave, submit to your master, and if you're a wife, be submissive to your husband." It's interesting to note that in in these two verses, uh, this includes husbands who are unbelievers and husbands who are cruel. Just like we look back in chapter 2 about the slaves and the masters, uh, slaves were supposed to submit to their masters, even if their master was uh, someone that was mean and cruel. And in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, uh, even if if any of them do not believe the Word, they may be won over without words. So even if your husband is an unbeliever, and even if he's cruel and mean, uh, wives should be submissive to their husbands. I like this concept of being won over without words. So... What Peter's saying here is the wife, being submissive to her husband, is telling him something, even if he's an unbeliever, even if he's cruel and mean and all that. She's preaching to him by her actions, winning him over without words. It's an interesting concept, but really this concept is the reason I titled the lesson of win them over without words, is because that same theme comes up several times in this chapter, and I think that's the the idea, the main point of this chapter. So, wives should be pure and reverent, and if their husbands are unbelievers, uh, they will uh, be won over without words. Let's move on to chapter, or the verse 3. Your beauty, speaking of the wife, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, oftentimes when we read this verse, we focus on the negative. We focus on the not with gold jewelry and fine clothes. We focus on modest apparel, but really that's not the focus of this verse. It includes that. But really the focus is wives should make themselves beautiful. Wives should adorn themselves, which is to decorate or make beautiful. So really it's not talking about wives make yourself really plain. It's talking about wives make yourselves beautiful. Not with these outward things, but with inward things. By your actions. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And this is an interesting concept. Uh, This kind of stuck out to me. Uh, Your actions affect the way you look. (laughs) This kind of stuck out to me when uh, the kids were young, and I was going through my high school yearbook. And I was showing them my picture in the high school yearbook, and I was showing them uh, some of my friends' pictures, some of them they know, and it was kind of fun to, they, to them to see uh, my friends when they were in high school. And uh, Dina was there looking over my shoulder, and we were, you know, I was telling them who my friends were, and I came across this girl who was the girl everybody liked. You just ask anybody. She's the one all the boys wanted to date. She was the prettiest girl in school. And Dina said, really? Because she's not that pretty. She said, what about this girl down here? She's a lot prettier. And you know, she was right. But that other girl down there didn't look pretty to me because I knew her. She wasn't very nice. And the one that we all thought was the prettiest girl, she was right. She wasn't really that pretty. You see, Dina doesn't know either one of those girls. So she was just looking at, at the face value. I know them both. And one's a lot prettier to me. superficial high school kid can understand that good actions, being nice, being considerate, changes the way you're perceived. It can make just a ordinary woman look beautiful. It can also make a beautiful woman look ordinary. I think that's the point uh, that Peter's making here. Your beauty should come from inside, from your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Verse 5. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. I like this translation. I'll just take time out there. Uh, I like this translation uh, because the King James says adorn, which is correct, but we don't use that word very much. NIV changes adorn to make yourself beautiful which is uh, easier to understand for modern day speaking. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. So two things in this verse. One is you can be a daughter of Sarah, Because she treated Abraham properly. She called him uh, Lord or Master. Um, And you are her daughters if you do what is right. And do not give way to fear. This is the first time this is coming up. But it's going to come up several more times in this chapter. This idea of submitting sometimes causes fear. So... When we're submitting to authorities, you know, it's easy to submit to the government if you agree with the rules. It's easy, no problem. But when you don't agree with the rules, it's not easy. In the same way, it's easy to be a slave and submit to a master whom you think the world of. He's just a great guy. It's easy to submit to that guy, but one that's cruel, and inconsiderate, and harsh. It's not easy, in fact, makes you free, but we should submit and not give way to fear. We'll talk about that more as we go on, Uh, but the punchline is, God's in control. Verse seven it says, "Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives, and treat them with respect, as the weaker partner, and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers." I'm going to take another time out here and talk about something that's very controversial. I'm going to make very controversial statements, statements that may shock you if you've Uh, gone to public school or especially if you've gone to college or if you've watched uh, the mainstream media. This might shock you, but there are differences between men and women. Men and women are made different. Modern society will tell you uh, that Men can become women just because they feel like it right now. And there is really no difference between men and women. And they call us science deniers. Uh, Kind of silly. Men and women. So here it says, as the weaker partner, or King James says, the weaker vessel. In what way are they weaker? You know, men and women are different in physical strength. Of course, this is a generality, right? Uh, But generally speaking, men are stronger than women. And it's because we have biological advantages for strength, for building strength. Uh, In when I was in high school, weightlifting class, the favorite thing was the bench press. That was what everybody wanted to be good at. And so I looked up, what's the world record bench press? Well, for men, It's right at 1,100 pounds, I don't remember the the exact number, but it's about 1,100 pounds. I didn't get anywhere near that. But that's the record for men. For women, it's 601 pounds, if I remember right. 601 pounds for a woman. So, just above half of what the world record for a man is. Now... I'll tell you, I'll admit to you, in all my years of weightlifting in high school, I didn't get to 601 pounds. So uh, there is a woman out there that can bench press more than me. But there was a kid in my high school weightlifting class that could bench press 600 pounds. So a man bench pressing 600 pounds, although that seems like a lot, is not that uncommon. There's thousands of probably hundreds of thousands of men in the world that can bench press 600 pounds. So you see what I'm saying? It's generally speaking, men are stronger than women. We have biological advantages, like I said. Men and women also think differently. This is one It's interesting to think about. But men think in a straight line. Generally speaking, men think in a straight line. One after another, after another, after another. Women think like a big blanket over the whole problem they're trying to figure out. Again, this is generally speaking. It's not that women can't think the other way, or not that men can't think like a woman, but generally speaking. And the reason is, we have biological things that make us tend to think those ways. You know, when I decide what to eat, Here's my thought process. What do I have? What out uh, of that looks good?
0: Right.
1: Mm-hmm. My wife, however, will say, I'll come home and I'll say, what's for dinner tonight? And she'll say, we're having soup because it's raining outside. I don't think, what's the what's the weather? And that doesn't enter my mind when I'm thinking, what are we going to eat tonight? I just think, what do we have? What do I want? But you know she's right. It's nice on a cool day when it's raining out to have a soup. I don't know why. She's right about that. But it wouldn't occur to me to check the weather and decide what we're going to eat tonight. But she thinks different than I do. I want to look back to Genesis chapter 3 at Adam and Eve. What happened in the garden? Just as another illustration of this, uh, men and women think differently. Remember the story, of course, that the uh, God made a rule. So here's God. And he made a rule. Don't eat. The fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. I don't want to spell it all out, we'll lose all our room. It says, don't eat. That was the rule. And remember what happened. The woman ate. Actually, they both did. They both both did wrong, and their thinking was wrong both ways, but they thought totally different. And I want to notice that. One thing the woman said was when she was speaking to God, she said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So one of the things that went into her mind, is the serpent is trustworthy. That was one factor in her decision. Serpent is trustworthy. If we go back up to verse 6, we have a, a few more things that she thought. Uh, The fruit of the tree was good. Looks good. And it was pleasing to the eye. Looks good. It was pleasing to the eye. And it would make you wise. Uh, Being wise would be good so those four factors we learn about the woman she thought of all those things and that's what caused her to make the decision but what about the man the man says the woman that you put here with me and they're not connected to the command. You see, they should have made this decision together. These two ways of thinking put together is amazingly powerful. We think totally different. But when they put put together, it's amazingly powerful. But You want this one in the lead. This one is not very imaginative. It's not very smart. It's not going to notice a lot of things. But it's going to file all these things in a straight line. It's going to have a lot of Of course, this doesn't mean that women can't think logically. Of course not. Because uh, you all understood what I was just showing you. It's that we tend to be this way. Men tend to be this way. It's not saying that men can't make emotional decisions. I make emotional decisions about every time I go on the sporting goods stores. <laughs> but I tend to make decisions this way. This is the, the biological advantage I have in this, in this regard. Okay, back to our chapter. Well, before we go there, I want to go to 1 Timothy 2, because there's another verse. Uh, that says something similar. And I think uh, understanding this concept uh, makes that verse easier to understand. First Timothy 2 and verse 11 it says, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed hmm, first... Try again. For Adam was for, formed first then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived, and became a sinner. So two reasons why the man is in the lead. One, just the luck of the draw, God made him first. Two, because the woman was deceived. The man wasn't deceived, he just went wrong. He made an argument, it was logical, he went ahead with it, they were both wrong. OK, now back to our chapter. So the reason I went on that big side note is that weaker partner there, again, controversial in today's society. And sometimes we men get up here and sheepishly read these types of verses. And women bristle at every time you read those type of verses. And there's really no use for it. There's no reason for it. It's not that. Uh, one's better or superior, it's that we each have our role and we're made a certain way. And we should uh, fulfill the role that God gave us. Back to 1 Peter 3, at verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So wives should be in submission to your husbands. But we're all submitting to God. So the admonition here is to the husbands. Treat your wives with respect. And treat them as a partner. As a fellow heir. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. You see, that uh, cruel slave owner who's mistreating his slave who's submitting to him and doing everything right. God's going to deal with that person. He's going to deal with that slave owner. In the same way, the husband who is cruel to his wife, and she's submitting and doing the right thing. That's going to hinder your prayers. God's going to deal with that husband. That's the admonition to the husbands. Verse 8. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another, Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. So this is to everybody. A general statement, live in harmony with one another. So think of harmony like music. We sang today, and uh, there were several that sang the lead. It's the main melody of the song. And all the rest sang harmony. And it went together. Right? So if someone was up here leading a song, and... I decided to, I liked a different song better, so I sang that song. Well, that's not in harmony with what's happening. And it wouldn't sound good. But if I go along with it and uh, help, uh, that sounds good, it all works. Live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic, be understanding, love as brothers compassionate and humble verse 9 do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult or with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing so that first verse we read there about living in harmony and, uh, love everybody that's easy the next one says don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult that's not easy Our reaction when someone insults us is to insult them right back. If someone harms us, we're going to harm them right back. That's our reaction. We get mad. But that's not what we're being told here. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Now that's scary. It's back to uh, do not fear. Because if you harm me, and I just take it, I'm not sure what you're going to do to me next. I'm not sure how this is going to turn out. If you just keep insulting me every day, I don't know if I can take that. Verse 10. He quotes from Psalms 34. Let's uh, just read through uh, verses 10 through 12. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's why we shouldn't be afraid, because God's in control, and he knows what's going on. So if we go back to Psalms chapter 34, or Psalms 34, this is not a chapter, it's a Psalm. In verse 1, in most people's Bibles, it's right above verse 1, it says, Of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. So David wrote this song when he was pretending to be insane or after he had pretended to be insane before Abimelech. Well, if you try to find the word Abimelech uh, connected with David trying to be insane, uh, you won't find it. But in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 21, at verse 10, there's the story of uh, David pretending to be insane uh, before Achish, king of Gad. And what, is, uh, what the scholars believe, and I think they must be right, is there were two, uh, earlier uh, in time, there were two kings of the Philistines named Abimelech. And it's likely that Abimelech just kind of became the name for the king of uh, the Philistines. So even though uh, in 1 Samuel 21 it calls him Achish king of Gath, he was probably also called Abimelech. So let's read that. 1 Samuel 21 at verse 10. It says, That day David fled from Saul and went to Achish king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. So David's run to this king because he's running away from Saul. But the servants of this king said, this is David, the one that's always beaten everybody in battle. Next verse, verse 12 says, David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish king of Gath. So he was afraid that this king of Gath was going to say, while I have you here, and while you're begging me for mercy, I'm going to kill you because I don't want to have to fight the lady. And again, David's just trying to get away from Saul. Verse 13 So he pretended to be insane in their presence, and while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, Look at the man. He is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? So it worked. David acted crazy, and this king says, hey, get him out of here. And that's when David wrote Psalms 34. And I just like to read the whole psalm. It's not very long The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil, and your lips from speaking lies, turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off from the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones, not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked, the foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems his servants, no one will be condemned, he takes refuge in him. So David was scared, but God delivered him from the hand of the the Philistine king, and he wrote this psalm of praise. And we can learn a lot about uh, the right kind of attitude, the way David treated Saul. Remember, he was running away from King Saul and many times he had the opportunity to kill him, but yet he never laid a hand on him. And always, uh, Saul would always treat him evilly, and he would always uh, treat him well. And, of course, we know the the Lord blessed David. Okay, back to our chapter at verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. So this first part is kind of easy to understand. Who is going to harm you if you do good? If you try to make peace with everybody, if you you try to do good to everybody, even if they do bad things to you first, you're going to get along with almost everything. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Every once in a while, there's going to be someone so depraved that they will... Uh, cause you to suffer. And even if that happens, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ might be ashamed of their slander. So the reason we do good to those, even if they're doing evil, is because we're setting apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. And then there's an interesting statement. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So if we do what's right, we're going to be winning people over without words just because we're acting right. And that's going to cause them to say, or to ask you to give a reason for the hope that you have. So you'll have an opportunity to tell them with words about God, but only after you've won them over without words. Only after you've uh, acted right. And uh, the other uh, piece to this is even when we use words uh, to preach, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. Verse 17. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body... But made alive by the Spirit. So there's the ultimate example is Christ. Christ suffered for doing good. He didn't do anything wrong, yet he suffered. So when we do good and suffer, we just follow Christ. When the world mistreats us or uh, harms us or causes us to suffer, We're just following in the footsteps of Jesus. (coughs) He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, verse 19, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. So verse 19 is a difficult verse. It uses some language that's difficult to understand. <clears throat> uh, but I'll just tell you what I think it means. Uh, through whom, that is, through the Spirit, he also went, that's Christ, and preached to the spirits in prison. And I believe that means who are now in prison. Who disobeyed long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. Now let's think back to the days of Noah while the ark was being built. You know, this this study, going over this chapter, kind of changed my understanding of uh, Noah and the events around that. I always thought, because remember uh, the Bible says that men's thoughts were on evil continually, and it made God sad. He was sorry. He made... He's he made man. And it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that's when he told him to build an ark. So I always took that as God saving Noah by having him build this ark. And he tells him to put all the animals on it. And he puts his family on it too. But as I read through this... I think as many people as wanted to get on the ark could have gotten on the ark. And I think Noah's family only got on the ark because they trusted God. It says in it only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. It also says God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. So we think back to Noah building an ark in the middle of a... a, open field or something, not anywhere near water. And at this time, if I understand uh, Genesis correctly, at this time there's not a body of water large enough on the earth to float this big of a boat. They've never seen it rain. So can you imagine what Noah's neighbors thought? He's out there building this giant boat. They must have asked him, what are you doing? think Noah would say, I'm building a boat because God told me to because it's going to rain. They didn't believe him. I imagine they probably didn't treat him very good. They probably made fun of Noah for building this big old ark. Probably thought he was a nutcase. (laughs) Noah was preaching to those around him. He was saying something to everybody that could see that ark. And I don't think Noah was uh, preaching as we think, as I'm doing right now. He's not preaching with words. He's preaching by his actions. He's building a boat. And I think that's what uh, verse 19 says. uh, that uh, That by Noah's actions, he's preached to those around him. And they were disobedient. But God waited patiently while the ark was being built. So Noah spent 120 years. And in 120 years, while everybody around saw this boat being built, only eight people got on it. Only eight people were saved. Verse 21. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and who is at Jesus' right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers, and submission to him. He says, in the days of Noah, when eight people were saved by water, it's similar to baptism that saves us. In a figurative sense, we're building an ark. We're assembled here and singing. And I'm giving you stories out of a really old book. And we're going to have a very simple supper. We're praying. And all this looks ridiculous to the world around us. It doesn't make sense to them. like the days of Noah. Matthew chapter 24. I didn't mark this. Verse 36 says, No one knows about the day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So just like in the days of Noah, it's going to be like today. At some time, Jesus is coming back. And there's going to be people of the world that are not going to be prepared. They're going to be going about their day. Worldly things are going to be the most important to them. They're going to be returning evil for evil. They're going to be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. They're going to do whatever it takes to get ahead. And all this time, while they've been making fun of you, for submitting, and just letting everything go, for seeking peace, no matter what your personal cause, for treating others like you want to be treated, then they'll understand. I imagine Noah looked pretty wise to everyone when it started right